written somewhere between 60 and 80 AD. And Luke tells us in the very beginning that he's writing this book to someone named Theophilus. We don't know who that is. We don't know if it's an individual. We don't know if that's kind of code for a a large group of people. Um, We're just not sure. But either way, Luke tells us in the beginning that he's writing this to be a a very thorough account, very eyewitness-based account. He's going to do interviews. He's, He's really wanting to tell the story, right? And so, all the gospels have unique stories. They have unique parables in them. But Luke actually has the most parables that are not found in in Matthew, Mark, and John. So about a third of Luke, give or take, is specific to Luke. Most of that comes from chapters 9 through 18, which is squarely where we're going to be today in chapter 10. So with that as the backdrop, let me bring you up to speed on the first nine chapters of Luke. Here's what's happened since we last tuned in. Jesus and John the Baptist were both born. They grew. Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. He was tempted by Satan. He began his ministry. After he began his ministry, his his fame grew. He began healing. He began preaching. He attracted 12 disciples. He continued preaching and healing. He drew the eye of the Pharisees. The Pharisees weren't at all fond of Jesus. And so he drew some criticism, but he continued preaching, teaching. He sent out the 12 apostles on their own mission to go and share the word. Uh, At some point, in a pivotal point, Jesus is talking to one of the 12. He's talking to Peter, and he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, I believe that you're the Christ. You're the Son of God. You're the Messiah. And, and Jesus says, it's on this truth that I will build my rock. Jesus goes on, he foretells his own death. He preaches this message of humility and, uh, and self-surrender. And that pretty much brings us up to speed to where we are right this second. Now, at this point in scripture, Jesus's fame has, has grown enough that we have, um, scholars believe there were 500, 750, so around that number of followers. So Jesus had a decent crowd at this point. And he's going to take from that 500, he's going to take 70, and he's going to send them out to the cities. Okay, so that's what our message is on today. And uh, Rodney read it in the beginning. I'm going to read it again. I want you to listen intently for the strategy that Jesus has in place for the cities. Okay? And then we're going to go verse by verse and kind of break it down and, uh, and look at how that might apply to our lives. So here we go. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the field. Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals. Do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what's offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town may wipe off our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this. The kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Strong words. So let's start right there in in the very first uh, kickoff there. Verse 1 says, after the Lord appointed 72 others. How many of you, uh, by show of hands, how many of you have a scripture that says appointed 70? Any? Yeah, a couple. So 
we're not exactly sure. There were, there were two Greek, um, I don't know, two Greek texts, and we're not sure which one was original. One says 70, and one says 70 and two. It's not really pertinent to the story, uh, but the King James Version says 70, the ESV and NIV says 72, so we'll, we'll go with that. So it says here that Jesus sent them out two by two. Now, two by two, obviously we would say, why would, what's the strategy here with two by two? Well, for one, accountability, safety, there's obvious reasons that we would go two by two and not just on solo mission, right? But there's a little more to it than that. What's a time in the Old Testament where we saw the good Lord watching over creation and saving them using a two by two format? Any thoughts? We've seen this before. We saw it in Noah and the ark, right? When Noah saved creation that way, he used a two-by-two format, bringing the animals on board. Well, here we see it again. Jesus is using a two-by-two format to send out the followers to go to the cities. Kind of interesting as well. And I find it most interesting from a what-do-we-do-with-this-verse standpoint is that Jesus believes it only takes two people to impact a city. I mean, think about that for a moment. We're going to impact, we're going to send out two-by-two, we're going to go to 35 or 36 cities, right? And it only takes two people in his mind to make a true impact on a city and prepare that city for the coming of Christ. So I ask you as a rhetorical question, what could a church of a hundred do when its focus is just on one city? Pretty amazing, right? So, all right, we continue. And it says, he sent them two by two to every town and place he was about to go. And he told them, the harvest is plentiful. Let's pause there for just a second. The harvest is plentiful. Now, to say the harvest is plentiful, we can take that at face value and say, yeah, of course the harvest is plentiful. But if we look back at Matthew in chapter 7, verse 14, and it's on your little sheet here, it says, but the gate is small, narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few will find it. So does this contradict itself? We see in Matthew, it says the, the road is narrow, the gate is small, few will find it. But here in Luke, he's saying the harvest is plentiful. So what do we do with that? Well, I believe there's two, two answers to factor in. One, we're talking about 35 cities. So even if it's a fairly small percentage that are gonna find this narrow path, a small percentage of a huge number is still a plentiful harvest, right? But secondarily, and probably more importantly, Jesus here is opening the door to reach the Gentiles. Now, if you look back, and I have, again have it on your sheet there, Matthew 10, five and six, I said Jesus sent out 12 earlier. He sent out 12 on a mission to go and to reach the cities using the same two-by-two two format. And he did it with 12, and now he's doing it with 70. Well, when he did it with the 12 and Matthew, here's what he said to him. He said, these 12 sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter into any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. So when Jesus sent out the 12, he had the Jews in mind. That's who he was trying to reach. But when he sends out the 70, suddenly he's opening the door. He's opening the gates, right? It's not exclusively just to the Jews. He doesn't issue the same command to the 70. In fact, he says something even different that we'll talk about in a minute, but I'll, it's worth giving lip service to here. He says, uh, once you go into someone's house, he says, stay there eating what is put in front of you. He says, do not, do not move around. He says, eat what's given to you. Now, this command probably wouldn't have even been necessary to say to the 12 because they were going into a a Jewish setting and a Jewish environment. But when we go into Samaria and some of these Gentile areas, suddenly that becomes more important, right? He's saying, don't, don't be ticky-tack. Just eat what's put in front of you for the sake of the gospel, 
Okay? So we believe that, that here Jesus is opening the door to include the Gentiles in that message. It's also worth noting in the very next part of that, he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. He says, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to what? Send out the workers into the harvest field. Now, first and foremost, it's worth noting here that there is a prayer before this mission even begins. Before anything even gets started, there is a prayer. And he says, we need to pray to the Lord for this to happen. And we need to, to remember that in our own lives. Before we start on any mission or embark on anything, we've got to pray. But it's interesting what the prayer is. Now, if it's me praying and I'm one of the workers, my natural instinct is probably to pray for more workers. If the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, it seems logical to think what we need is more workers, right? But that's not what the prayer is. Instead, the prayer says to send out the workers into the field. Now, as a disclaimer, I don't know anything about agriculture at all. But I know this, when the harvest is ready, it doesn't do any good to sit around and wish there were more people to help with the harvest. The most important thing is that you go, right? And that's what Christ is saying here. He says, don't just pray that we have more people, which means less work for you all. Pray instead that we will go into the fields and, and get the harvest, get those whose hearts are prepared. Verse 3, go, he said, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Now, this isn't the first time we've heard the lambs and wolves metaphor. That's kind of a constant theme throughout Scripture, right? We know that Jesus is the good shepherd. Watch out for the, uh, the, the wolf in the sheep's clothing. Uh, there's a whole lot of metaphors in the Bible about lambs and wolves, and there's obvious responses to that. When we hear that, the natural response is to think, well, we're supposed to be careful, Right? When we go into these parts, we're supposed to be conscious of the fact that they're wolves. We're supposed to be aware of that. We're supposed to enter in uh, with, with humility, gentleness. Um, in fact, in Matthew 10, 16, it says this, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. Well, I don't really think of sheep as shrewd, but I'll give that the benefit of the doubt here. And so, so but he's telling them to, to, to be humble and to be non-threatening. There's also an obvious connection to the fact that when we go out, there's a cost of discipleship. There's a risk, right? When we go out as lambs into the wolves, there's risk there. And there's in, anything we do for the sake of the gospel, there's a cost and we need to be aware of that. It's obviously worth it, but there is a cost. But if we go just one level deeper with this, I, th I think this is a, an interesting point Jesus is making, and it really boils down to strategy, okay? It boils down to strategy here. When you think to yourself, we're going to send out the lambs among the wolves, what do wolves generally do to lambs? Generally speaking, they would eat them, right? But Christ is saying, look for people who will feed you. So he's telling them to look for the complete opposite. Now, why would, he, why would he tell them this? Probably because this is how they'll identify the wolves from the not wolves, right? Now, they're going into these cities, and, and it's safe to say that none of the people there are believers. They're not followers of Christ yet. But what he's saying is look for those who at least have a soft heart. Look for those who are not wolves, who are at least open and hospitable in some way. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. But he goes on, and he issues... Uh, a, a statement that may give us room to pause. It says, do not take a purse or bag or sandals. 
Now, obviously, they'd already be wearing sandals, so we believe this is probably an extra pair of sandals. What he's basically saying is, don't take a bunch of stuff with you. Why? Why would he say, don't take a bunch of stuff with you? Well, the obvious response is the fact that we, Jesus wants us to rely on God. If he clothed the lilies of the field, he'll also do the same for us. If he cares for the bird, he'll do the same for us, right? So he wants, he wants faith, he wants trust. But I believe this is also part of the strategy. He knows that if we bring our stuff into this setting, if the 70 were to take, you know, go into these cities loaded to the hilt with things, where's the motivation for someone to take them into their house? How will they interact with the people of peace in that city, right? They're coming with, with stuff, they're loaded down. So why would someone step forward and offer to, to help and to bring them in? Sadly, how often does the church, not necessarily this church, but the church in general, how often do we do this? On mission trips, we go into a setting and we bring all of our stuff, right? Well, what does that really attract? The wolves, maybe? When we bring our stuff, it's a lot more attractive to those who want stuff than it is for the people of peace who are already in that community. So I, I think there's a, the, the, the twofold answer here is that we need to trust God. We need to come with humility. We need to come humbly into the setting, right? And I think stuff can cloud the issue. Stuff can get in the way. And I think that's what Christ is saying to them here. And then he says, furthermore, do not greet anyone on the road. Why would he tell them do not greet anyone on the road? Well, there's an obvious answer, and that is he wants them to be in a hurry. He wants them to be focused. He wants them to have a one-track mind. And in, in Bible times, if you were to greet someone on the road, the conversation could drag out. It could drag out and out and out. And you might never get to the spot where you were hoping to get, right? And so there's, there's just basic logistical planning here where he says, do not greet anyone on the road. But there's also a parallel verse that would maybe ring true to the 70 when they heard Jesus say this. In 2 Kings 4.29, also on your little sheet here, 2 Kings 4.29, there's, there's a story in Kings where there's this, there's this lady, she's barren, she can't have children. And she goes to the prophet and she says, I, I, I'm ready to, to bear children, but I can't. Can you help me? And he helps her, and she becomes pregnant by her own husband. And she continues on, and the story progresses. The son gets sick, gets a mysterious headache, dies, and she sends her servant back to the prophet to help her again. So the prophet receives word of this, and now the prophet is sending someone to go and help the son who has died. Okay. Uh, there's a lengthy story for this verse, but the verse says this. So the prophet says, tuck your cloak into your belt. Take my staff in your hand and run. Don't greet anyone you meet. And if anyone greets you, do not answer. Lay my staff on the boy's face. Now the, the, the 70 would, I mean, if they were, I would assume they were familiar with this story. They would think back on this and they would see the ramifications. The, 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 the hurry, the urgency is because there is death right? It's not an urgency for the sake of urgency. There is physical death in kings, but there's spiritual death in these cities. And so they would, they would catch this parallel and they would get the magnitude of what Christ was sending them on this mission to do. Does that make sense? Of course it does. You're all intelligent people. Have no doubts. All right. So, so there's a sense of urgency here. Now, in the very next verse, it says, when you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. 
Stay there eating and drinking whatever they give you for the worker deserves his wages and do not move from house to house. There's an implied invitation, right? It says when you enter a house, obviously these disciples aren't gonna go break into someone's house, but it says when you enter, so there's an implied invitation. They would get to a town, someone would invite them in. So it says when you enter, say peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, the peace will rest on them. Stay there eating, drinking, you deserve your wages, etc. The summation of that, as you read those three verses together, it just screams hospitality, right? Find someone who's hospitable to you, who takes you in. Now, in Mississippi, we're the hospitality state. I, I view hospitality when I think of hospitality as like they're really nice at having decent parties and they're welcoming and they have nice things, and, right? You know what I mean? But the biblical sense of hospitality is obviously a little more in depth. Here's... Um, a handful of verses, back again on your sheet here, a handful of verses of what hospitality really alludes to when we see it in Scripture. First, it says this, biblical hospitality is a love of strangers, as in Romans twelve thirteen, fellow believers, widows, orphans, unbelievers, the poor, the needy, missionaries, foreigners, immigrants, refugees, even enemies, as if they were your own family. So basically everyone. So what this means is caring about people. When we see hospitality in the Bible, we see it as caring about people, caring deeply about people, right? And this is a huge, huge part of scripture. I actually didn't realize how pivotal the idea of hospitality was um, until I began preparing for this. But listen to a few of these verses. Luke 14, uh, 12 and 13 says this, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you would be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that when we entertain strangers, we may be entertaining angels unaware. Jesus' whole ministry the whole ministry of the disciples depended primarily on hospitality, right? Jesus said in, in Matthew that he didn't have a place to lay his head. Martha invites, Mary and, and Martha invite Jesus into their home. The whole discipleship thing was based on other people being hospitable to the 12 or to the 70. It was a pivotal point in the ministry. In fact, one of the uh, characteristics for being an, an elder or being in church leadership is that you are hospitable. There's seven or eight things mentioned, and one of them is that you are hospitable. Basically means you care about people in general, deeply, right? Christ taught us that the second greatest commandment was, anybody know? Love your neighbor as yourself, Matthew 22, 39. And then the parable of the Good Samaritan clarifies what that means. Who is your neighbor? Well, it's, it's anyone in trouble, it's everyone. Okay, all of this, all of this coming back to and boiling down to this idea of hospitality. And that's really what this mission of the 70 hinged on to a large regard, right? So the 70 were going into these cities to find people who were hospitable. Now, again, I've said that, that they weren't necessarily Christians, but we're told in scripture that being hospitable can be a sign of a soft heart. It's an outward reflection of the inward heart. And so I ask you, how hospitable are you? Do you really care about people? Now, there's a risk to being hospitable. Uh, on your sheet towards the bottom, it says, 
Second John 1, 10 through 11 says this, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. Here's the important part. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Okay, so let me drive the point home this way. Let's say that next Saturday night, we get a phone call. The leaders of venue get a phone call and there's this new guy in town. We don't know him at all. And he says, I really wanna lead worship. Josie probably needs a break. Just please, I can play the guitar real well. Let me lead worship. And we say, okay, let's be hospitable. It's a stranger. We don't know anything about him. We'll put him on stage, right? And he gets here and he shows up and sure enough, the guy can play, but all he plays is Justin Bieber songs. Oh man, and there's weeping and there's gnashing of teeth and we're crying and people are yelling and they're pulling their hair out, right? And it's just terrible. Well, who does that reflect poorly on? Obviously, it reflects horribly on the guy singing Justin Bieber songs, but it also reflects kind of poorly on the leadership because we allowed hospitality. We allowed this guy to proclaim this this horrible, insanely bad message, right? So it can reflect poorly on the, the home. As these disciples, as these 70s are coming into someone's home, there is risk. There's risk that uh, that, that they will be kicked out of the home, which is also why in verse 7, towards the end, it says, do not move around from house to house because it looks bad, right? It looks as if your message has been denied by whoever's house you were in, and now you've got to go to another house. Imagine this poor Justin Bieber singer just hopping from church to church because no one will accept his music. Sad, right? Super sad. So, all right. So we continue on. It says, when you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what's offered to you. We already kind of talked about that. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. The kingdom of God has come near to you. Now, there's some discussion here, kingdom of God. We also hear the term kingdom of heaven. Matthew uses the term kingdom of heaven frequently throughout his scripture, but the other three gospels use the term kingdom of God. So you, and, and in the story of the rich young ruler, we see that in, in one sentence he says, you will not inherit the kingdom of God, and in another sentence he refers to it as the kingdom of heaven. So we, we can kind of believe that these two may be interchangeable. Uh, but they, they, they mean one of two things. They're, depending on where they're positioned in Scripture, the, the idea of the kingdom of God either refers to the fact that there is one eternal sovereign creator over all things. Okay, so it may just mean that there is one eternal God. There is one entity. There was one powerful creator. But it also, in many instances, means that it's a, it's a designation for salvation. It basically explains the born-again story. So when someone says, preaching the kingdom of God, they're preaching salvation. They're preaching the story of how it all works and being born again and the whole nine yards, right? So here when we say, he says, heal the sick and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. I think that's, a, that's the, the biblical way of just saying, tell them the story, preach the gospel, tell them that there's this eternal savior who created all and tell them how to be saved. Tell them how to meet this person, Right? So he says, um, tell them that. Tell the kingdom has come near to you. But he says, when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into the streets. Say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God. So still preach it. So he says, you go, you're denied. It doesn't work. What should you do? You should still preach the gospel, but just know this. It will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Well, that's a bold statement. Right? And I think it's a really important message 
probably put in place to motivate the 70 as much as anything. Because Jesus is wanting these 70 to realize the magnitude of this mission. He says, when they reject you, in essence, they're rejecting me. And he said it would be worse for, the, for them than for the town of Sodom. Well, we know what happened there. The whole city was destroyed, right? So, so he puts this in place, I believe, to tell the 70 how important this mission truly is to them. So there's two points, two huge overlapping points here to this, to this message. The first one we've talked about quite a bit, hospitality, hospitable. Do we care about people? Another way to look at that is, do we see people the way Christ sees them? When we look at someone, do we see them as the way the world sees them? Or do we see them through the eyes of Christ? Do we truly care about that person? Do we care about their salvation? Do we care about their belief system? Across the spectrum, right? Poor people, rich people, orphans, widows, everybody. Do we care? But the second theme that has been the overarching theme that we haven't discussed a whole lot is the specific strategy that Christ puts in place with this story. Let's go back and look at the specific strategy. And I'll be brief because I know we're... Get along on time. But, but here it is. Jesus appointed 72. He sent them out two by two to go with very little clothes. And I mean, not very little clothes. They were fully clothed. But he sent them out with, with very little supplies, very few things, right? Little baggage to go out into these cities and to go into these towns. Once they got there, what were they supposed to do? Find the person of peace. How would they know the person of peace? Because they were hospitable. They would take them in. They would feed them. They would be nice to them. It was in this way that they would identify whoever they could partner with, right? These, these people of peace were integral in the ministry. They were developing, developing partnerships with people on the ground in the city who already had a soft heart. That was the strategy. The strategy for the 70 was to go find people who had a soft heart, get those people on your team, and impact the city. We can use this exact same approach on mission trips, locally, internationally. We can use that same approach here in our city. And I know some of you are going to be career missionaries if you're not already. Some of you take short-term mission trips. Some of you have those planned already. And I think looking at this model is a legitimate outline as to how we can do mission work, not just internationally, but also locally. Who can we impact? Who do we see as the people of peace in your circles, in your areas? Is there a plan in place for the city of Hattiesburg? I think it's worth noting that not only are we the hospitality state, but we're also the hub city in the hospitality state. So if Jesus was sending out the 70 on mission in the southeast United States, you would have to say Hattiesburg would be on that list, right? Well, well here we are. We're 100 people in this city. What's our plan? Who are the people of peace? How can we identify that hospitality, share that hospitality, but also impact the city of Hattiesburg? It's a rhetorical question, but a legitimate one nonetheless. Um, through, through this little discussion, you may have had ideas. You may have had thoughts that have come into your mind. Just for the sake of it, I, I put the elder email addresses and names at the bottom. We're open to ideas. Lord knows we don't have all the answers, right? And so if you say to yourself, gosh, throughout this brief little Sunday morning, I had an idea. Why don't we fill in the blank. Why don't we X? Why don't we try this? Why don't we go here? Email us and let's talk about it. Let's put actions in place, right? We are a hundred 
who can impact a city, 120 or 30, right? Two people could impact an entire city. So Jesus said, what can a hundred do? Let's be strategic. Let's be purposeful, right? And let's, let's do it together. Let's be on mission together. Now, I'm legally required to go another eight minutes as per the Southern Baptist Convention, but I'm gonna go ahead and wrap it up. Um, let me close us in prayer. And uh, as I do, I'll invite Josie and the guys to come back up and then we'll do uh, communion. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we come to you thankful, God. We, we're thankful for freedom. We're thankful, God, that we live in a country where we can be together on Sunday morning, that we can worship God, that we can discuss your word, God, that we can study together. God, I thank you so much for the blessings that you've given each one of us in this room. I pray, God, that we can share those blessings and that we can be hospitable to others. Dear God, I pray that the city of Hattiesburg will know your name as well as the rest of the world, God. I pray that we can develop a strategy, God. I pray that we will follow the strategy you have put in place for us. I pray, God, that we examine our own lives and examine our own hearts, God, to know whether or not we are following in your footsteps as far as hospitality, God. And I pray, furthermore, that you will just continue to bless us and continue to watch over us as a church family. God, we just love you and we praise you. For it's your name that we pray. Amen. Now, it's at this point that I want to invite you to come and take communion with us. Uh, if you're a believer, we do this every Sunday here at Venue. It's a, um, a big part of our worship, and we just invite you to come and partake. Uh, the body of Christ has been broken for you, and the blood of Christ has been shed for you. So please feel free as the band plays to come and, uh, and enjoy that. Thank you.